I myself am both a Christian theologian and a believer. And for me, there's no oddity in being both of those things together. Faith and intellectual life are two parts of one seamless whole. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Dr. Oliver D. Crisp of the Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. He joined in 2011, also a professorial fellow at the Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology. Did I get that right? You got that absolutely right. I'll confess to having practiced. (laughs) Dr. Crisp, thank you for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dr. Crisp is and has been a professor, fellow, and lecturer at various universities and institutes of theology, both in the UK and the US, a minister, a prolific author, editor of articles, essays, books, and a sought-after lecturer. In fact, we're speaking today because he's here presenting at the Brigham Young University campus. Before we talk about a personal faith journey, I'd love to jump into the present for two questions. The first is the idea of being a theologian and being a believer. Are they the same, or does it depend on the person? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I suppose these days, and perhaps unhappily, it does sometimes depend on the person. One can be a professional theologian without necessarily having a profession of faith. Historically, of course, that would have been something very odd indeed and, and very much an anomaly. It would have been expected that if someone was a professional theologian, they had a deep connection to the church, usually because they were ordained in some kind of church denomination. I myself am a both a Christian theologian and a believer. I have actually for a short period of time served as a minister in the church many years ago. And for me, there's no oddity in being both of those things together because it seems to me that faith and intellectual life are two parts of one seamless whole. Not everybody sees it that way, but that's certainly how I think of it. You're lecturing this evening on campus about Christology, and I wonder if you'd explain what that definition is to you. Yes, well, Christology is the academic study of the person of Christ in particular. And, of course, that has to do with various theological issues with respect to things like the Incarnation, which is how the second person of the Trinity or how how uh, the Son of God becomes a human being and what that means, as well as things like how can he be both fully human and fully divine at one and the same time, and so on. So Christology is the the academic study of those sorts of questions, questions that pertain to who Christ is, what it means to talk of Christ, what Christ's work is about, Issues that really get to the very heart of the Christian faith. I wonder if you'd take us back to your earliest memories of faith or religion or some connection to God. I grew up in a Christian household, always going to church. I don't have any memory of doing anything other than going to church on a Sunday. And I grew up a a Baptist in England, in, in the greater London area. My mother used to take us to church every week. So for me, church life was not an oddity that I had to grow into, but something natural that was part of the very fabric of of weekly routine and the humdrum existence of uh, growing up. That continued into my teens, but during that time, I did have a sort of crisis of faith and wondered, is this something that I want to own for myself, 
or are these sorts of empty rituals that we go through on a weekly basis? If it's something I want to own for myself, then I want to know whether there is a God and um, what that really means. And that was the beginning of a journey of faith that um, led me ultimately to a profession of Christian faith as a teenager, and, and it was a Baptist church, so we were baptized as a, by full immersion. And then at the end of my teens, I went to study art, but uh, that was fairly short-lived and the, the kind of theological bug, I think, had got hold of me. So I ended up transferring to study theology in Scotland, and uh, that was really the beginning of my intellectual journey into theology. I wonder if I could go back to when you determined that you needed to know or wanted to know. Did you have a plan for how you would execute that search? I didn't. I mean, I think as I was growing up, I, th- I had some, I had a bunch of questions, not just some questions. And I think like a lot of young people, there's sort of questions about life, the universe and everything. Is there life after <laughs> death? You know, what can I know is true? And a lot of people, I think, after a while, kind of grow out of those questions or at least put them to one side because other things become more pressing. And for some reason, as I grew up, instead of putting those things to one side, they became more and more the focus of my attention. And so I think it's because those things became more and more the focus of my attention that eventually I ended up uh, studying theology and making theology my career. So I'm assuming at some point you found or experienced or decided something that was real faith. Right. Yes, I did. And that was during my early teens. And in particular, it was uh, during a a weekend away with the youth group, as I think is not untypical of people of my stage of life at that point. And we were away, and we had a group of people who were leading that weekend away. And it was at that point at which I had a, a religious experience and made a profession of faith. And subsequently got baptized and was made a member of the church. So, it, and it was an it was a really important moment for me, as is I mean, often people make that claim. You know, they had underwent such an experience, and it was a really important moment for them. But for me, it was the culmination of a search that had been about these kind of existential questions about life, the universe, and everything, and finding other answers very unsatisfying. But the interesting thing was. Although I'm an, a theologian and, and I think the intellectual study of religion is very important, it wasn't actually an intellectual, primarily an intellectual experience that led me to change my mind. It was an encounter of sorts. It was a religious experience that led me to a kind of transformation of how I thought about these things. And then the kind of intellectual component followed on the heels of that. Hmm. What a milepost for anyone's life, searching and then feeling that you found or latched on to something that you were perhaps hoping was there but weren't sure. Right, absolutely. That's definitely the case. And it was something that then led me into the intellectual questions that I mentioned earlier and and through those intellectual questions, desiring something more about, you know, wanting to have answers to those issues and finding that there was a way to deal with those questions and there was a way to get answers and that was by means of the study of theology. That seems it would be very satisfying to go into theology and study those very questions of your youth built on that foundation of belief. That that would give it a layer of meaning it almost seems you would have to have to pursue it yes. for yeah. a lifetime. Yeah, well, I think so too. I mean, although I have met people along the way for whom the study of religion is a kind of source of some fascination to them, although they're not sort of existentially connected to it. Maybe it's a bit like 
people in the social sciences who go and study uh, tribal groups in the Amazonian basin or something like that. And they're mm. interested in their lives and their rituals and they want to understand what they're doing and so on. But they're not participants in that way of life. And I think I have met people along the way for whom the academic study of religion is like that. Anthropological. Right. Anthropological in some sense, uh, certainly semi-detached in a manner. And uh, often those have been very pleasant people to work with, but that's just never been my experience. For me, it's always been a uh, joined up matter and the two things have, have folded one into the other. I've never felt a kind of dissonance between the academic work that I've done and the religious faith that I've had. Those two things have been both important poles in my life, if you like. There are so many fascinating areas in theology, everything from translation and language and, and the meaning to the spread of a church or a religion around the world. So many things, but it seems to me that you have really tried to focus in on the very central figure. Right. And just right at the heart of it. Yeah. I think as I plunged into theology, the deeper I went, the more there were a cluster of central and defining issues for the Christian faith that I was drawn towards. And it's that sort of cluster of central and defining issues which throw up all sorts of fascinating questions and problems that I was increasingly wanting to explore further. And inevitably, that's what I ended up doing. So I, I, in my graduate work and then in, in my subsequent career, I've ended up moving ever deeper into those sorts of questions, questions about things like the Trinity or, or of, about the personal work of Christ or about other aspects of the faith like salvation from sin and those mm -hmm. sorts of things. And it's been a, a fascinating sort of quest and a fascinating journey. I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> but luckily, you write a lot about it, so we, you can take us along after the fact yeah. with, with what you've done. When you come home, or it's time to just be a person who believes in God for personal religious practice, is there sort of uh, you know, the professorial frock that you take off, and then, <laughs> and then you're just someone who believes? I hope so. <laughs> I mean, my family have a little joke with me about being the professor um, which, of course, I am in one respect. But uh, I do try very hard to have a life with my family and my children in particular, which is as normal as a professor can be when he's not thinking about or she's not <laughs> thinking about questions of philosophy and theology. And we, so we do have fun and we do talk about other sorts of things. I think my children do get rather exasperated if I start to go off on a theological tangent, and that quickly brings me back to reality. And they have been, over the years, a wonderful sort of grounding for me in you know real life and um, taking me out of the ivory tower. And I, I've been so grateful for that. What about your faith brings you joy in your life? Well, that is a that's quite a question. I think there's a difference between a kind of surface happiness or a surface passing, fleeting sense that something's a good thing or something that is something that you can enjoy, and that deep centered sense of kind of contentment out of which a life can grow and be formed. And in my experience, religious faith is of the latter sort. In other words, having that center, that moral and religious center at, at the heart of my life and what I do, uh, hopefully radiates out in tangible ways in, in other things that I do in my life, even if it's not always consistently. 
And that's the case even when, in particular circumstances, I might be going through highs or lows. And of course, like anybody, mm. there are lows as well as highs. So for me, having that religious joy, as, it, as you put it, right at the heart of everything I do, doesn't mean that I'm not subject to the um, ups and downs of and the, and the vicissitudes of life. But it means, I hope, that when faced with those difficulties, one can work, work them out or face mm. them from a place of sort of, if not inner calm, at least a, a sense that there's meaning at the heart of where one's life comes mm. from. I'm wondering, because there are so many books written that talk about the person, the man of Jesus Christ, have there been challenging moments? We're talking about someone who lived a long time ago, and we have, in some ways, not that much to go on. Mm. But uh, the central, I don't want to use the word conceit, the central concept of Christianity is that God becomes a man. Mm. Right. And so in your studies, have you had things that challenged, was he divine? And, and how do you deal with the back and forth of all of those discussions? That's a good question. Certainly, I think there are all sorts of intellectual challenges as you start to plunge into Christology. Um, some of them seem like big challenges to begin with, but the more you think about them, the less of a problem they seem to be, perhaps. Others sometimes can creep up on you. You might not necessarily think they're a huge issue to begin with, but the more you think about them, the more troubling they become. So for me, there are certain examples. Yes, of, of course. Of yeah, those? absolutely. So for me, there are there's uh, issues to do with, let's say, a fairly classical way of thinking about who Christ is. That he's uh, human and divine, and fully human and fully divine, and one one divine person who has, in addition to his divine nature, a human nature. Trying to figure that out for some people is a really, really big deal. You know, can we figure it out at all? For me, I found that a less troubling aspect of trying to get a grip to the extent that we can get a grip on issues uh, to do with the, the person of Christ. But other issues in the neighborhood are more troubling. So for me, something I've gone back to time and time again is a question of the relationship between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history, which is a long-standing scholarly dispute going back into the uh, 19th century and even into the 18th century. Mm. And certainly since the, the rise of people who've worked on biblical texts that are called historical biblical critics, trying to uncover a kind of a historically accurate text about what Jesus did and didn't say, what he is reported to have done and so on, questions have been asked about, well, is the Christ of faith, the Christ that's believed by the church, the same as the Jesus of history or someone different? Have we got here a kind of oil painting that's been overlaid with mm. years and years of varnish? If we uncover the varnish, do we get at the bottom of that something that looks like the church picture of Christ? Or is it, in fact, someone entirely different, the Jesus of history, who's a kind of peasant prophet who wandered around first century Palestine and said various odd things at the time, but never really claimed to be the son of God. Now, that question, that, that sort of question is just a complex set of questions and has a huge scholarly literature attached to it. It seems to me to be of vital importance and is something that I've gone back to time and time again. And each time I've gone back to it, I've thought, you know what? I thought I had it figured out, but I need to think it, about it again. And that's a good thing. It's a good mm -hmm. thing for us to continue to have questions that we, we need to search out, we need to answer, and that in some respects trouble us. Do you find that people sometimes don't want to ask, even ask or consider some of those questions that it will be too unsettling? 
Definitely. I think that is true. And certainly people of faith sometimes worry that if you pursue theological studies, it will ultimately undermine the faith that you have. I mean, it's often said that studying in a seminary might be the cemetery for your faith. I hope that's not the case uh, in the classes that I teach, but I, I certainly see why people might think that's the case, because they worry that there's this bifurcation, this this pulling apart of faith and knowledge, faith and understanding, faith and, and what we believe. And the worry is that the more you pursue sort of head knowledge, the more your heart knowledge will shrivel. Hmm. And so I do understand that. And I do see that in my classes, students come in obviously concerned about that. But I try to reassure them that there's there's good reasons for thinking that um, both of those things can go hand in hand. And there are many great exemplars of Christian thinkers in the past who spent their lives exploring the head knowledge, as it were, whilst deeply engaged in, in religion of the heart and in, in that which is experiential. And so those two things can go together. You've been invited to speak at over 50 different universities. There is a reason people are asking you. Now, that could be that you have an engaging personality and you have presentation skills and all that, but I think there is more to that. When you are engaged with a university audience, do you feel that there is something they are hoping to get from you from the experience of hearing you share your knowledge? I think it depends on the audience, really. I mean, if I'm speaking to an academic audience, they're often wanting to hear a you know, an argument and particularly a novel argument. And has he defended the argument adequately mm. and those sorts of things? And that often leads into interesting question and answer sessions, which, of course, someone in my profession relishes. If I'm speaking to a broader audience, like in a public lecture, in that context, I'm trying to communicate more broadly in a way that hopefully will engage the general public or those people who are interested who might not be uh, professionally engaged with the issues. And there, I suppose, people who come to hear that sort of talk are maybe intrigued. They have their interest peaked about something about the title of the talk or the topic of the talk. They want to know more. And hopefully, uh, I'm able to communicate something of the enthusiasm that I have for the subject mm. and, and something of how I, as far as I can see, this is of intrinsic interest. And then I hope in, in the sort of question and answer session that usually follows these things, try to engage people where they're at. I think it's terribly important in effective communication to build a bridge to your audience that you don't expect them to come to you, but you go to them in order to try and help them to grapple with the issues that they're dealing with. That's a very public question. If I could ask a more private question, and sure. you can decide, I'll just ask and you can tell me how you feel about these. But are there times where you feel, I have seen God working in my life, I have felt led or prayers answered, those types of experiences? Definitely. Um, for example, the reason or one of the main reasons why I'm living and working in the United States at the moment is because my youngest daughter suffers from a serious sleep disorder. And in the search to get her adequately treated, we ended up coming to the conclusion, my wife and I, that we really needed to be in the United States for her to get the medical treatment that she needed, mm. which was obviously a huge upheaval. But we felt that it was that was an important step to take, and we did it in faith. And although it involved all sorts of um, ups and downs in order to make that happen, we 
we saw that by stepping out in faith, so to speak, and trusting that providence would go before us and pave the way for us, that that is what happened. Mm. And we were able to get my daughter effectively treated, and we were able to come to a place where she could live a near normal life. That's a huge change in our circumstances and one that we felt was definitely underwritten by the Christian faith that we professed and the prayers and tears that were sweat that was, you know, mm. given out, as it were, over the course of the, the time that we had to make those decisions and move our family across the globe. That's uh, literally many steps of faith, <laughs> an entire journey. So I'm glad to hear a positive outcome for your daughter. Thank you. What are the things on a daily basis? Are there things that connect you, whether they're rituals or remembrances or readings or, or, or a journal keeping or things that make you feel that you are connected to the, the Holy Spirit or to God? There are several things for me that are important. I come from um, the Reformed tradition. That's the tradition that I identify with. And that tradition has liturgies and confessions that are very much part of uh, the life of faith. So, Reformed Church of England? Refor- well, actually, interestingly, uh, we have Reformation. been... We have been, yeah, Reformation, really. We, we have been members of the Church of England when we were in living in England, but now we're living in California. We're members of a Presbyterian Church, USA. Hmm. But I think probably my sensibilities are really Anglican. Sorry to my Presbyterian friends. But it's that sort of tradition, prayer book tradition, uh, confessional tradition, which has been very important in my own spirituality. And of course, you might think, well, of course, you're a scholar and you're a professor, so it's not surprising that that's your way into a kind of religious life. But I do think that I've also had uh, various times in my life where I've had a a deep sense of the presence of God and have been very grateful for those experiences, often through um, reading scripture, through times of quiet reflection, through engaging with the tradition in various ways. Sometimes even through the reading of works by historic theologians, you know, works on, it might, might not necessarily be works on prayer, it might even be works of spiritual theology, particularly of the Church Fathers, that have really made a connection with me and um, have helped me in my spiritual life. So there are, there are lots of different ways, I think, in which I've been fortunate enough to be able to connect in a deep and thick and rich way with the spiritual traditions that have formed me. Completely hypothetical. If you could choose one of these church fathers and go back and sit elbow to elbow and ask a few questions, or do you have someone in mind you think, oh, I would love to know more? That's a really good question. I would have said my first response would have been Athanasius, whose work on the Incarnation I really admire and have read numerous times and set my students to read often. Athanasius was a bit cantankerous, so I'm not (laughs) sure he would have been the most fun person to be with. So I wonder whether it would be really interesting to sit down for an afternoon with Bishop Augustine of Hippo, uh, one of the most influential Christian theologians of all time, really, who wrote so many important works, The City of God and his confessions and all sorts of other things, but particularly his confessions, which in some respects has the elements of an autobiography, is a, is a book that I've often found fascinating, gone back to time and time again. I'd really like to sit down and, and talk with 
Augustine and about his life and about his ministry and about the different decisions that he made and see what he had to say. And is there is there some question or some record you wish we had? I'm totally making this up. Or some some question that you wish were answered about the person of Christ? Absolutely. I am fascinated by the fact that there's this huge gap in the gospel narratives between his youth and his ministry as an adult of what, ah. around 30. And so much legend. And so that much has legend. Filled yeah, that gap. Absolutely. So I would, re- I'm, of course, I would love to have a written record <laughs> of what went on between the age of 12 and the age of 30. Where did he go? Did he go to India? Did he go sit at the feet of other sages? Did he study somewhere? What did he do? But did course, he walk on England's did green he hills? Did he work? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to quote the song. Exactly. Um, so that would be fascinating to know more about, of course, pure speculation. But I think that would fill a huge gap in terms of how the person who emerged from that and had this Galilean ministry was formed in really really fundamental ways. Is there some core teaching of Christ that is a touchstone for you? Something that you refer to or a parable or a story or an idea? Well, I think I often think of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a, is a bit of a cliche, I suppose, as for me, a kind of set of fundamental Christian teachings that both attract and repel me at the same time, paradoxically, because mm. there's something about the uh, Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Christ there that is captivating and seems ethically pure, if you like. There's a kind of moral simplicity and honesty about what he says there that seems very attractive. But at the same time, if you read the Sermon on the Mount with care, or even if you read it superficially, you very quickly pick up the fact that a lot of the things that Christ says, if you take them at face value, seem to be absolutely impossible to live out. In society. In society, yeah. Or if you're just a normal human being. Um <laughs> And so there's there's a there's for me something paradoxical about that that on the one hand here is what you might think of as the heart of Christ's moral teaching uh, and it does present us this picture of the moral life which is wonderful and attractive and beautiful even but at the same time I and I don't think I'm alone in this I'm constantly aware of the fact that my the chances of my measuring up to even the mildest aspects of the uh, moral imperatives of the Sermon on the Mount are extremely limited. What should I ask you that I don't know to ask about or something that you have thought I would I'd love to be sure I share this? Well, now that is I've not been asked that question before. Uh well, I'm. I wonder if uh, if listeners would be interested in knowing something about the connection between my love of all things to do with art mm. and my love of things theological. There is a connection there of a sort. Please. Um, I mentioned earlier that I went to art school briefly and have continued to paint. I studied painting and sculpture. Subsequently, and eventually, funnily enough, have ended up painting things that have appeared on the covers of books, including not just my own books, but some of my own books and, and others as well. And I've even, even done some commissions and recently I've done some commissions, which has been a wonderful thing 
to do. For me, the artistic life and the pursuit of art and beauty and um, what one might more broadly think of as aesthetics is deeply connected to my pursuit of things theological. Hmm. The psalmist says, One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to worship at his temple. For me, that's always struck me very deeply and resonated with me as a way in which the pursuit of beauty and the pursuit of art connects up in a really deep way with something about the divine nature and therefore ought to be something that we think about theologically. Now, I don't presume to have plumbed those depths, Mm. but it is something that I've long been interested in and that I hope in the future I might find some time to explore in greater detail. It would be fascinating to read your explorations on that subject, especially given your, your personal talent in that area. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Dr. Oliver D. Crisp from the Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. What a pleasure. Thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest, theologian and author Dr. Oliver D. Crisp. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Do you have to have a conversion experience to be a believer? Do you sense God leading you at times or perceive the hand of providence as you look back at the path you've taken? And how do you balance studying your faith intellectually with experiencing it on a personal or feeling level? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Melissa Dalton Bradford is a global mom as well as an accidental refugee advocate and, also accidentally, a political activist. Cassie Schreiber is a recent humanities graduate who enjoys making friends and writing. Suzanne Christensen runs a theater company, producing Shakespeare plays with children. John Salmon is father of four. He teaches engineering and loves to travel. What? engaged me in Dr. Crisp's thoughts was primarily this idea that the head and the heart must meet to have, at least in his estimation, a religious experience, and he called it specifically an encounter. My own religious or spiritual experience can also be defined, I think, as encounter with the divine, and following also with what Dr. Crisp described about one of the most prominent religious or spiritual encounters of his life, it came at a time when his family was in crisis. Two things happened. His younger, his youngest daughter had a sleep disorder. They knew that this was going to require a move. And that immediately spoke to me because as I reflect on my spiritual landscape, as I look on this landscape behind me, I can identify really quickly the places where I have encountered the divine. And they are associated with crises, where all of the dogma that I had stored in my head had to be filtered into my heart. And and here's what happened in my life. Uh, We're a family that's moved a lot. So as soon as I hear the word move, I have a visceral reaction. We've moved 20 times, 16 times of those have been international. And 
one of those international moves in particular from our long-standing address in France to a new place in Germany happened at exactly the same time that we lost our eldest son to tragedy. Completely out of the blue, something one couldn't ever prepare themselves for. And this beautiful, healthy son actually lost his life to an act of heroism during the very week that we were moving from one country to the next. I've always been a deeply faithful and you would say spiritual person, but this catapulted me and and our family to a completely new place where I experienced God's presence, God's awareness, God's love and kindness for me, and many revelatory experiences, unlike any I'd ever had before, because we were in such, such excruciating extremities. My friends here probably have had similar experiences. My belief is that everybody is pushed to the edge of loss. That's what mortality is about, and that this is where we encounter God, and we find out for ourselves how God is alive in our lives. And um, one thing that that I did instinctively was to withdraw from any other social distractions, you would say, which was pretty easy because we had just moved. We pulled our suitcases with all of our son's mortal belongings onto an airplane from a funeral, landed in a new country, and started a completely new life. So nobody knew us other than the bereaved parents. They never knew our son. So for them, he didn't exist. And I pulled myself into a complete social retreat. And it was in that social retreat, a wilderness, so to speak, where in an unprecedented kind of silence, God was able to speak to me and reveal things, I'll just say reveal, let me know things, by dreams, by impressions, by very clear communications, I'll be very specific. Our son lost his life when he was trying to extract a fellow college classmate from a hidden whirlpool in an irrigation canal. This was the first week of college, and none of the other students that were there on site were eyewitnesses to the entire accident. So a lot of details of this accident were left mysteries for us. No one could explain exactly what had happened to one person. So my husband and I went into this sort of spiritual retreat and prayed in a steady stream, (laughs) fasted a lot. We followed the pattern of fasting, which many religious philosophies ascribe to. And We were led to people through these spiritual communications. I don't know quite how to describe it any better than actual names coming to us. You should speak with this person. You should call this person. And through doing that, we were able to piece together the actual chronology of the accident. And that was thunderous for me because who am I to have God speak in specifics to me? and then to have verifiable truth in front of my in front of my eyes that blessed our families at one time it was the most horrifying passage of our family's life but it was also very very holy very holy thanks for sharing that melissa mm-hmm. i a lot of what you said resonated with me because these moments of crisis being moments where you can encounter the divine and i think of probably the most 
prominent experience that I had, like Dr. Crisp, like his youth, his youth experiences were important to him. And he said he often looks back at that. But I also had an experience in my youth where a crisis happened and I didn't really know what to do with myself. I was so distraught. And I reached out for God um, through prayer and through study of religious text. It was like the Grinch. (laughs) Um, I felt like my little heart grew three sizes to understand the situation better. And since then, I I don't think I've had quite an, an intellectual, but I'm grateful that I've had that experience in my youth to look back to that because crisis moments continue to happen throughout your life. And I'm grateful that I've had that kind of bedrock experience or that pattern made for me that I know now how I can reach out to God again when hard things happen because they they always do. So I really liked that, what you said. And everyone has a different iteration of crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever yours was, they are all things that leave us. William James called it. It's a great German word, Zerissenheit, which means this torn-to-pieces-hood. And it's in that torn-to-pieces-hood where we're so reduced and everything that worked for us before might not be working in the same same way. It feels like the earth just disappears in one, in one act out from under our feet. And then we fall, at least I have felt, falling into this waiting embrace or these waiting hands of, of God doesn't mean I wasn't kicking and screaming the whole way yeah, down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um, but I think that's important to you that you had that in your youth because you can look back again like I do over the landscape of your life and say, I experienced that. And mm-hmm. there's nothing more intimate than internal experience you share with the unseen God. Beautiful. One really interesting aspect of my life, at least it's interesting to me, I don't know how interesting it is outside of my own head, but... When I think back on my life as a whole, I have this clear, clear, clear memory, memory of a time when I was a very small child, just sort of moving through the small world that was the world of my house and the world of our yard and the world that was as far as you could go, whatever the boundaries were that your parents set and they slowly grew, and just kind of moving through this sort of sunlit forest of toys and trees and people and always having this solid knowledge that the world was infused with the presence of God, yeah. that that God walked at my side, that God watched over what I did, never questioning him, never even really, I think, that interested in him, but just but just that that there was a sense that there was a being that knew all the things and had made all the things and understood all the things and was there in all the things, watching me learn about all the things. And I think that was a time in my life when my head and my heart didn't know that they could be separated. They didn't need to be separated. That wasn't an issue. There was nothing my heart felt that my head didn't think, nothing that my head thought that wasn't a a thought in my heart. So I was a very I think, and I think this is common for small children. I was a very cohesive being. And I just walked on God's world as one of God's people, and God was there. And I think that a lot of the efforts to walk a religious path in my adult life have been trying to figure out how, how I might use that incredible sense of God, how I might bring that, for example, into a crisis. What do you do? When the world falls apart, is that God there? And if he's there, 
why is God not helping? You know, why? How do you continue to walk in the world when it's not just sunlit time of really nothing happening much? How do you bring your head and your heart together again, like they used to be when you were small? I think that I, at least, as I grew up, imposed a lot of rules on the world. If this, then that. And I, I think that in my religious experience, I inherited what I actually have come to see as more of a folk tradition, not not actually doctrine, of sort of a checklist life, kind of a you can live in a certain way that will buy security, that will ensure certain outcomes. You can be good enough to protect yourself and those you love from anything really bad happening. And in a crisis in my own life, I sat across from a religious leader and was somewhat driven to this to this sort of howl of betrayal, you know, saying, but I actually saying the words, but I did all the things. How could this come to me when I have done all the things? And my faith tradition is I am also a Christian. And, and one of the foundational tenets of that teaching is that no one, not even our God, can do so many things that nothing bad ever happens to us in our existence. If we did, if that, if He did that, we, there'd be no growth. And my religious leader looked at me and he said, "Well, there's certainly no need or room for Christ in a world where you did all the things." That was really a shock to me to find out that I had constructed a world where I was doing everything so nothing bad would happen. I really feel like my experience as an adult has been trying to get back to that to that little girl place of there doesn't have to be a separation. And I, I think about what Dr. Crisp was saying about I never really felt I had to separate my academic pursuits from my from my walk in the world as a Christian. And I think that, again that's that bringing of the head and the heart together. I think that that's where we find God, but it's hard. It's a hard thing, and we, we pick up all this stuff. We, we set all these rules. We, we dare God to hurt us. We will be so obedient that, that he won't be allowed to allow anything to happen. And I think that's been a real eye-opening experience for me as I've grown, is that he will allow life to happen to me because he loves me. That's not what we do as parents for our own children often. We try to avoid letting life happen to them because we love them. Well, I don't think that I've been necessarily one that's had a huge crisis. The, the terrible loss of, of a child is, is very saddening. And, and yet there are times in my life where I've had to grapple with this dichotomy of heart and, and mind. And so I resonate kind of with that first question that Dr. Crisp answers in terms of, is he a theologian or, or a believer? And I think that I've been on both sides of that midpoint over different phases of my life. I think probably right now, because of my experience and upbringing as an engineer and as a scientist, that I tend to gravitate towards the theologian side. And the continual, I think, effort that I have is to exercise more more faith and be a believer in, in more than just kind of the, the intellectual side. That being said, I also kind of resonate with Dr. Crisp's sort of attempt and quest to, to answer these questions. To me, that is the beautiful thing of uh, the divine, where there are so many things to pursue and to think about and to ponder and to exercise faith in that it's exciting and it's, yes, in some ways incomprehensible, and yet it's also inexhaustible. 
in terms of what you could do to try to apply these principles into your own daily life, whether you're dealing with small mini crises or, or very large ones. And it's exciting to kind of find that that midpoint where you're applying the intellectual, the, the, the theologian side of my personality, and also the, the belief side in, in, in my life. I'll just share that. That's kind of, John, what you just said about that meeting point, that midpoint. I love that midpoint between the head and the heart. When we went in, or when I specifically went into this retreat in order to find God in this wilderness, and the Jews actually have a word for it. It's called avalut. There's this ancient, ancient ritual that the Jews follow that that's particularly for children who've lost parents or parents who lose children, where they go into a year of complete social retreat. But what they do besides retreat is that they study. And so... I didn't shop, I didn't listen to any jogging playlist, I didn't watch any TV videos, nothing for a full year. It was all studying religious text. So I went through what for me is my whole library of religious text, and that was it. And I pulled out all of the, I guess, the Desert Fathers, all of the, mm-hmm. all of the religious writing that I could find, and the survival stories of Holocaust victims and 9-11 victims, and, and studied. I remember sitting on the parquet floor of this old turn-of-the-century apartment in Munich where we had just moved, which I didn't want to set up because I didn't want to live. I didn't want to unpack boxes and establish myself in this new world. And our children, we had three surviving children at that time, would take them to school, my husband would go off to work, and I would sit cross-legged on this parquet floor, wrapped in sweaters, with this crescent, this like big spine of books around me, and just study, 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 for hours, all day long. Study, pray, cry. Cry, pray, study. <laughs> study, cry, pray for hours all day long and found that was a climate, I guess, that I was allowed to create by the loving hand of the divine that we were pulled out of our social circles where we had lived before. No one knew me. Nobody expected me to show up. And I could just try and study out and feel this divine presence and receive promptings and guidance as never before, never before in my life. That will always be a landmark for me. And like I look back like Cassie does and I say, I experienced that. That was real. That was real. (laughs) No one can tell me it wasn't real because I've cataloged it in my own soul and felt more. There's not a fancier word I can come up with than love and light. Love and light. The experience of love and light in spite of such devastation. So I loved how Dr. Chris early on mentions that he made the switch from art to theology and then later at the end elaborates more on that and how he went to art school and how he's still painting today. But I personally, my connection with the arts and my spiritual experiences are very intertwined and they're kind of like that quote he says at the beginning, faith and intellectual life is is one seamless whole. And so for me, as I've grown up and as I've watched movies and been to art museums, I love how I feel like coming out of a really good film. There's something deeper than just, wow, that was really great. But it's it's a spiritual experience that I've had. Even in school, in high school, I remember going into biology with my friend of a different faith background too, but we would come out and be like, oh my gosh, I just like believe in God even more now that I know that like, 
DNA, the way it replicates, it's so easy for something to go wrong. And the fact that there are any humans alive and functioning as they are today, like, is miraculous. I just pursued that kind of joining of my intellectual life and my spiritual life in my college degree as well. And I studied the humanities, so I studied different art forms and different cultures actually at a religious university. I took one course in particular called Cinema and the Sacred, and we didn't even necessarily talk about God or, you know, different religious practices, but we talked about how how people can make f- films, how they can cut them and edit them and and the stories they can choose to tell and how that creates an, an orienting experience in someone's life or a healing experience in someone's life. And I adored that class. I loved it. <laughs> it just taught me a lot about how, you know, these daily devotions to God, we, we can have our specific kind of religious rituals that we choose to draw upon, but we can also go to maybe more like common elements of the arts or of music or, hey, I just learned how cells replicate and it makes me feel something deep inside. And we can share that with another person. So I really loved that Dr. Crisp feels that connection between the arts and the divine. But I think we can feel it through all disciplines and in conjunction with the divine. I grew up in a household where I think side by side with my faith community, the structured religion, were the arts. My dad's a music professor, my mom's an opera singer. All of the kids ended up being musicians of different degrees of proficiency or professionalism, all of us. And I remember, like Suzanne remembers, those experiences as a little child walking out into this world with God and feeling that complete integrity of the heart and the head. I remember as a little child sitting on velvet seats in the dress rehearsals when my mother sang Verdi or Wagner or any of the great or the Mozart operas. And as a child, I must have been maybe three or four years old, sitting on the seat so that my feet couldn't reach the ground and feeling that wave of, I'd call it today now, spirit, hot wave coming at me from this beautiful music. And I identify that too with the divine. I can't separate the two. All these, the creation of beauty, as Dr. Crisp says, this pursuit of the aesthetics, that that is of divine origin. And that is also a language that the divine speaks with us. It transcends all borders. It transcends all cultures. Uh, music, artistry, you're referring also to scientific exploration, too, that this is an indication of us of this of a grand creator and wherever we can participate as well in the creative process be it scientific or engineering or on the art on the, on the stage or painting that we participate in the this divine nature yeah the beautiful thing i think about god is that he is so many things to so many people and so to myself who is an engineer you know i view my my god my my father in in heaven as an engineer, someone who is rigorous with laws of nature and is following them to pursue and perform different tasks to design a beautiful universe in which we can live. And at the same time, I know that he's also an artist. And there's an awe that comes to my heart and my mind every time you see a sunset and you realize that he's painting a beautiful picture every single night, uh, or evening rather. And there's, of course, my brother and my father who are lawyers, and they love the justice 
sort of a personality or aspects of of uh, of God and how He is very just and even in some sense all merciful according to the various sort of roles that he plays. And I love how there's these different sort of professions that we all take on, whether we're writers or scientists or mothers or fathers or what have you, and find that relationship that God takes or has with us to resonate with our souls and try to help us reach him through our hearts and, and through our minds. There's a book in the world called The Beak of the Finch. It's, it's a study of the evolution and adaptation of finches on one of the Galapagos Islands in this very severe environment where there's, where there's almost nothing for them to eat. It just looks at their beaks and the way their beaks help them access food and the way their beaks change in relation to the food that's available to them. And it's a beautifully written book. But when I read it, I remember feeling such a rush of of excitement and joy that that God was in the alterations of the beaks of the finches, that they were engineered specifically to be able to open these terribly difficult. They're actually the same thorns that we have here in Utah that we call puncture thorns. That's what they eat, and uh, you can open those. And apparently, there's a seed inside if you have the right if you have the right kind of beak. And I remember reading that book and just wanting to stop every people on the street and say, you know, maybe you didn't know this, but there's an island in the Galapagos where where the finches are able to eat these horrible little seeds and get the nutrients and their beaks alter according to the amount of rain that is received on the island because that's the thickness of the... And I was just, I was so excited about the God in that. I was so moved and, and just, I just looked around and thought, there's so much going on that I, I don't know about. And if it were up to me, if I had to run the world, things would just be dying right and left, you know, systems would just be breaking as I can, I can hardly remember why I went into my pantry, right? But I was just so thrilled that someone made a study and wrote it in this beautiful way that I could access it, that I could share with them this incredible thing that was going on in the world that who would ever know about and that I could find God there. It was amazing. Yeah. Just, we've talked about having encounters that teach us about the divine and then sort of having the intellectual life follow. That's what Dr. Crisp said. But I also think in talking, we've discovered that the reverse is true as well, that as we intellectually expand ourselves and then if we take a personal effort, maybe to combine that with our faith, it leads into that deeper kind of inner contentment that he was talking about, or this kind of joy that isn't just on the surface, but it's deeper within us. And so, again, I just love how both intellectual things and faith matters can be combined into a beautiful whole. I was just going to agree, and I think you maybe said it much better than I'm about to, but beforehand when I mentioned how I have move from side to side across the spectrum of theologian to believer and back again. And I recognize that the pendulum, I think, does lead both ways. And I think it's appropriate for us to maybe swing back and forth and try to find that stability between the two. But it's not such a bad thing if we find ourselves in a phase of life where we are studying a little bit more and we're reading a little bit more and we're maybe a little bit more cerebral with our views of the divine. But ultimately, I think you're right that we should let that encounter then follow the intellectual experiences that we've had and then of course let the encounters with the divine follow into more study into more intellectual efforts of trying to understand the the being from which we from from which we spawn and so i think it's a beautiful thing that he kind of shared that first of all he came to an encounter and then 
through that decided to kind of explore more things intellectually. But I think it's a circle where once you have those experiences and you've studied and you've thought about things and pondered them, then you should let the belief also come into your heart and into your mind and so you can grow in faith in that regard. I wanted to just follow up on something Cassie said that reminded me of a note that I took when I was listening to Dr. Crisp, where he was distinguishing between happiness and joy. I wonder, since I've lived in many places in the world, I wonder if it's a particularly American pursuit for happiness, that we think that our religion should make us happy. You touched on this, Suzanne, too, that if, we've, if we do all the things, then we're going to avoid, somehow circumvent the bad things, that this checklist will equal happiness. And I loved that Dr. Crisp said that he was much more interested in joy and that he said joy was something that was enduring and it was closely connected to meaning. That's why for me, even in times, long period of, of grief and mourning, I would never say that I was happy. And I get angry when people insist that you have to be happy because you're a faithful person. I don't find a lot of other faith communities that insist that we have to be perpetually happy. But this sense of deep joy or at least meaning, carried me. One of my favorite quotes, and I can't even recall who said it, but it comes to mind frequently in these sorts of discussions, is that joy is not the absence of pain, it is the presence of God. And it's even in our most devastating moments, we can, at least it's been my experience, I have felt a divine presence underneath underneath, deep underneath, in these deep, deep waters underneath, inexpressible sorrow. And so for me, an encounter with the divine is not necessarily something that's going to be pastel color and, and carbonated. It, it might very well be super weighty, super dense, like down on the bottom of the ocean floor. But it's that recognition that it's there that God can be trusted there at the bottom of the fall, that my God is there for me. That has given my life meaning. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, John, Cassie, Suzanne, Melissa, and especially to author and theologian Dr. Oliver Crisp for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds Share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon, right here, In Good Faith.